Romans chapter 6. So, uh, so far in Romans, we've dealt a lot with sin, and, um, because sin's a prevalent issue. But in dealing with sin, it points to the main kind of theme of Romans, which is that we've been justified. Followers of Christ are made right or justified to God. And to be justified is to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, and so we have seen that. And um, Paul has spent a great deal of time and effort talking about how everyone sinned. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter the amount of revelation you have, you have sinned. Explain that. Talked about the danger of legalism. Uh, the idea that uh, you've got to keep the Jewish law, or that you're saved by the law. And uh, law does not save you. Law condemns you. Law points out your sin. You're saved by grace and faith. And so we've seen that. And now in chapter 6, Paul's going to kind of deal with another issue uh, that can come up. Uh, there are those, especially from a Gentile background maybe, who say, obviously, you know, since we are not saved by our good works, and since we are saved by grace, of God, and that God is shown to be just when he justifies us, and God is shown to be just when he saves us, then as Christians who are no longer under the law, we can live by total freedom to live however we want, to live with license, or to live a life that is called sometimes to be libertine. And uh, to be libertine, the libertinism is free from moral constraints. And so they go to the other extreme, away from liberal legalism, they go to total kind of what you might call liberalism or libertarianism, where they're free to do whatever they want. Uh, and so those, those two philosophies are seen throughout the New Testament letters, especially of Paul, as he deals with them in numerous places, encounters them with truth. And so what Paul really does in Romans is help us to understand what it means to be free. To be free does not mean to do whatever you choose, because inevitably we will choose sin. And that actually is not freedom, but that is its own form of slavery, to be bound to chain. To be free means to be free from sin, so that we can live life the way God wants us to live life, in relationship with him. Living a life that has a sense of obedience to it, not because it saves us, but because in obedience to God there is joy, in obedience to God, there is happiness. In obedience to God, there is peace. God does not call us to do things that are bad for us. And we, 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 we live in this world where people have the idea that to obey God means to not enjoy life. That to obey God is to live a life of, of drudgery, to live a life of servitude, to live a life where there is there's no pleasure. Part of that's our fault because there have been groups of Christianity, especially since the Reformation, that have taught that pleasure is wrong, that if you enjoy life, there's something wrong with you, and that they've been so legalistic that they take the joy out of faith. And so others kind of go in the other extreme, and they say, because we can live with joy, we can do whatever we want, and if, and if we do sin, that's okay, because God's grace is shown. And so Paul comes in this sixth chapter, and he balances that out and deals with that. So chapter 6, verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? That would be the, the logical conclusion. If you're going to say that I am free to live how I want, and in my sin, God's grace is revealed, and when God's grace is revealed, he's glorified, one could take the assumption of the argument then, let me sin a bunch all I want, because that's going to bring about a greater amount of God's grace, or God's going to be glorified even more. And Paul gives a response that's emphatic in the Greek and English, 
may it never be. How shall we who die to sin live in it? And so here we have one of the important understandings of the faith is that when you become a follower of Christ, you die to sin. The sin nature, and we'll see that more in a few moments as we go through the verses. The sin nature is buried. The sin nature is crushed. The sin nature is defeated. Why would you then, if you are free from sin, you can't then live a life back in sin. You can't go back to that life. First place, it's not possible. Because here's the thing. If God frees you, when God sets you free, as Paul writes, we are free indeed. When God sets you free, God cannot be defeated. We don't have the power to undo what God has done. And so understanding that we can't go back to the life of sin, why would people say then to go back to that life is freedom? Paul says to go back to that life is to go back to death. Remember, the Bible points to us, God reveals himself to us, especially Paul writes about the fact that we are dead in our sin. In our sin, we are dead, spiritually dead. And so we've got to understand that a life of sin is a life of being spiritually dead to God. If God makes us back alive, how can we ever go back that? We can't live in sin. Verse 3 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into or unto or in connection with his death? So Paul's going to bring up baptism. So let me just talk about baptism in a few moments. It's oftentimes very misunderstood. As evangelicals, Baptists, we believe and understand the New Testament teaches that baptism is symbolic. It represents something. And oftentimes when we do baptism, I point out that it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which it does. And it symbolizes our death to sin, our being buried, and coming back to life in a new life. And it looks forward to the ultimate resurrection of all the dead in Christ. It is symbolic, and so therefore baptism does not save us. Now, there are places in the scriptures, and to some degree in Romans, where sometimes it appears, because in that immediate context, and without taking a wider context, that sometimes it looks like baptism may do something else. It may save you. It may wash away your sin. That if without being baptized, you can't be saved. And so in time, some groups, especially in Catholicism, began to believe that you had to be baptized to be saved. And so they, you know, logically, if you believe that, then they began to baptize children, infants. And when they baptized infants, they didn't immerse them, but they sprinkled them. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know why you can't baptize an infant by immersion. I mean, just cover the mouth, cover the nose, put them down, put them back up. I say that because I would never do that. But evidently, you know, know. so it's dangerous, I guess. So, you know, this idea of of sprinkling or pouring, they would pour water on it. And so you had this whole idea and this whole doctrine developed and we deal with that all the time. The Bible is very, very clear. Baptism is for believers. And it's by immersion. You put them in, you put it out. There's some debate whether Jesus was immersed because the Jordan River. And there are times they say the Jordan River is only waist high. I don't know if you know this. But a lot of times when we baptize someone, it's only waist high. We get them under. Trust you. We're going to get them under one way or the other. They're going under. You have to, I, there have been times I've had to like do that. There have been times they wouldn't go under. I went that to cover them up. But, but the word bapt, to be baptized, baptizo, 
And I've said this before, it's a very violent term. It means to plunge under. I said it's a very violent term, and we looked at the baptism videos from our last baptism, and Barry took us to heart, because Barry took somebody and went right in there and pulled him right back out. I said, Barry, it's baptism is violent. It doesn't mean you have to be violent. Just easy down, easy back up. But the thing about it is, it's, it's a term that means to plunge and to pull back. I was pulling back out. And so... Nowhere does it ever say baptism saves us. There are places that baptism saves you, and then it goes on to talk about it represents the salvation. You you have to take all of the passages that deal with baptism, and all of the passages that deal with salvation, and you put them all together, and what do they tend to teach? What they consistently tend to teach is this. We are saved by grace through faith, and baptism pictures that. And the best argument I know against baptismal regeneration, which means you've got to be baptized to be saved, is that old thief on the cross. You know, a lot of arguments are solved by the thief on the cross. And I said, one of them, I said this here before, that guy had about the worst faith you could possibly imagine. Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't do anything. Didn't go to church, didn't get baptized, didn't give any money, never went to Sunday school, didn't do nothing. He just died. All he did, the, the sole part of his Christian experience was dying. That's it. Baptism, then, is what he says. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, that baptism, we have been baptized into his death. In other words, the baptism that we picture connects to the death. And here's what he says. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death. Not literal death, but it pictures that death. It shows us being connected to Christ. Baptism is a picture of our new birth, of our connection to Jesus. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just as Christ was, was raised back to life from the, from the tomb, we are being pictured and united with Christ as being raised back to life as well. So we put him under, we bring him back. Sometimes when we baptize, we'll say buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. comes right through here. And so what we're saying then in baptism, and what Paul is saying, so we say it, is that the picture of baptism is a reminder of what Christ did, and it's a reminder that we're connected to that. We're picturing it. It's, it's a, it's a, we're connected to it through our faith in Jesus. It doesn't save us. Think about it. How does water save you? It's the most illogical thing you can ever think of. How does... You, you get a few drops of water. Do you get the water from? You get a few drops of water that came somewhere from the ground, and you get it, and somebody blesses it. What is, how do you bless it? It doesn't transform. And you take that water, and you put some drops from somebody, and say, you're saved from all your sins. That's absurd. Even if you plunged them. How does that? How does going to the baptistry, which doesn't exist back there. There's a pretend there's a baptistry. How does going, and how does plunging them in and bring, how does that save them? How does it do that? It's illogical. It makes no sense. What are we saying about God? What does that say about God? It says some crazy things about God. He doesn't care what you do. Just get wet. And he's going to save everything. And Paul says, what baptism does is it connects us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we understand it to be a picture. Now here's the thing. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, united with him, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So as we are connected to the death of Christ, we are connected to the resurrection. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, from a biblical perspective, is seen as one event. Uh, sometimes I'll call it the cross event. I learned that you know, many years ago. The cross event speaks of the death and the resurrection is, is connected. The death guarantees the resurrection. When Jesus died, the resurrection of Jesus was guaranteed because God was going to do it in one stop and die. The resurrection always presupposes there was a death, so they're connected. So baptism then is a picture of all of that. And so then we are connected to Christ. We are united with him. There is a bond because of, the, of what Christ had done. Verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. So here's what he's saying. When Christ died and was crucified, we weren't crucified. But when he took upon himself the sins of mankind, the sinful nature and the sins themselves, when we give our life to Christ and trust him by faith, our sin is then reconciled as being crucified with Christ. He has paid the price for our sin. And so our, our sins have been paid for at the cross. Now we teach that, we believe that, we have to. Because ultimately, God has to do something about sin. And so if Christ didn't die for our sins, then we still have our sins. Now, we believe in what we call substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy term. And not everybody agrees with that, whatever, and so they're obviously wrong on that point too. Substitutionary atonement means this. Christ died as a substitute. He died in my place. We believe he's a sacrifice. Almost everybody believes he's a sacrifice. In other words, he died for us. He died, you know, in our place and on our behalf. He died on our behalf. But he died in our place too. He substituted himself for us. And in doing that, my sins were nailed to the cross. Which Jesus didn't have any sins. Whose sins did he die for then? He didn't die for our sins. Whose sins? So he took upon all of us, took upon himself all of our sins. If we don't trust him as our savior, his death has no value for us. We have an essence held on to our sins. We are claiming our sin is ours. Paul says, he who has died is free from sin. In order to be free from sin, you have to die with Christ. Now, not physically die, obviously. But you give yourself to him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself you know, obviously means that you don't put yourself first. People struggle over to take up the cross. Take up the cross means to die. This is what this means. You die with Jesus. And baptism puts you under. It pictures what you've been. Now, if you're not baptized, can you still have been di- died with Christ? Yes. I mean, so people are going to be baptized on the, on the 28th. Joe, what are we at right now? Five. Five? Probably have, looks like we'll probably have three or four more. Last time we baptized 13, something like that. So, is anybody who's waiting to be baptized, understand this. I, we, uh, we offer to people, if you want to be baptized, see us. People don't just get to say, I want to be baptized, and we say, okay, show up. We, 
we, and I say mostly it's Joe, and, and, and I think Barry does it a lot, and sometimes I think Brian and, and uh, um, Troy do also, we always go through the plan of salvation to make sure they're safe. Because sometimes we have people, and we've had them, well, I had them this time, people who thought they were already baptized, they haven't trusted Christ yet, we don't baptize. We don't baptize people who don't trust Christ to be the Savior. You got that? So don't ever worry when we say, hey, we're having a baptism service, you want to be baptized, see us. That's kind of like the invitation done differently. We're, we're sort of tricking them. You want to be baptized? Come on. Then we're going to share the plan of salvation with you. And you may not get baptized when it's over if we're not convinced you're a follower of Christ. So, but here's the thing about all that. If so, all these people who are going to get baptized, if something happens and Christ comes, you know, before the baptism, or if they die, are they still saved? Well, of course they're saved. Baptism doesn't save them. Baptism is a public proclamation of their faith in Christ. It is the picture of what has happened. It's a beautiful picture. It's the best picture there is. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to see a good baptism? That just brings joy. Lives have changed. Y'all, y'all be here to see people get baptized. And the last time we did it over here in that little pool, that little portable baptistry, it's a crazy thing. And it's, it's the, we have, by the way, one of the nicest portable baptistries you can have. So it's still, it's, it's still done well. And just to see the people coming in and see their, you know, we do the videos. We go outside. We don't think we're going to be able to do a video. We can't show a video. I think maybe we'll do audio or whatever. But just their life stories, to see the change, the joy, the excitement. Why? They've already been saved. But, yeah, we're, we're all together celebrating. We're celebrating the new life in Christ. Why do people, I, I don't understand why people don't come to our baptism services. I'm going to say this. Unless you're physically unable to come, there's just something wrong with that, man. Now, I'll tell you to your face. There's something wrong with that. Verse 8 says this. If we have died with Christ, then don't we believe we shall live with him? Yeah. I live with him now. Right now. And when, when I die, I won't be with him for all eternity. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer a master over him. So death is no longer a master over Jesus, and death is no longer a master over us. Death, now we're still going to die physically, but that doesn't mean it's defeated us. Remember, death, death is not the end. Death is but a transition from this life to the next. Death is but passageway. Now, I'm still not interested in dying anytime soon. I'm, I'm um, still... Still a pretty young guy. I was at the hospital earlier today. Felt really young when I left. Go to the nursing home every so often. I feel like a teenager. So I don't necessarily want that. I mean, but I understand if my time comes that it's not the end of anything. It's just the beginning. But you know, because I've not. This is all I have. All I've ever experienced is this. So I'm not really ready to give this up yet. Just be honest. I'm not. I'm not ready to give it up yet. There's some. I know what's beyond there is infinitely better, but there's still some things I want to see in this life, and some things I want to experience because that's just all I know. It's kind of selfish. I get that, but I still know. And, and that baptism. Every time we baptize, and every time we have the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded 
then I am connected with Jesus Christ forever. Now, hang on. We're going to say a few more words about that. Then I'm going to tell you why that matters. For the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all. In the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. If you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, how can you keep on sinning? You can't. Now next week we'll pick up in verse 12 and it goes on. So when you say then that I'm going to sin because by sinning, I let God demonstrate his grace and his grace goes more and more. You are making an argument that is illogical for a Christian who has died to sin. Sin is not our master. We can't live a life of sin. Do we sin? Yes, we sin. We know that. So there's some other factors that bear into that. This doesn't cover, this does not cover everything there is to cover about the situation. But Paul is dealing with a line of thinking. and he's, Remember, Paul is not writing in these few verses an overarching, comprehensive view of everything to do with sin in our salvation. In, in Romans, there's a holiness, so that's good. But right here, he's not necessarily But what he's reminding is he is dealing with an issue, and the issue is one of license or to be a libertine and to believe that you are no longer bound by moral restraint. A few years ago, one of my uh, closest friends growing up, sweet girl, lady now, um, and, a, and a lifelong friend, uh, one of my other friends that I saw in San Antonio told me that she had gone through a divorce, which I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. A great Christian family and a um, fantastic Christian lady. Uh, and what my friend told me it was that her husband had decided that uh, he was going to leave her and go another direction in life, but that was okay because that would allow him to show the grace of God anymore and that he could then live the life he really wanted to live, not with her, and that in doing so, um, God would have the opportunity to be glorified. It was just twisted. She was so sweet about it, so forgiving, so loving, so kind. And, you know, when I heard that, and I, I think of, and, and that's more common than you realize in life, it, it just bothers me because it's such a faulty view of God. It's such a selfish view. It's such a wrong view. And more than that, it's an eternally tragic view. Book of Hebrews says, if we abandon, we abandon what it is that saves us. We didn't lose our salvation. We were never saved to begin with. There's nothing left. If you go, if you say, I'm going to live a life given over to purely to pleasure and sin, you can't be a Christian. Jesus says you can't. Read the Sermon on the Mount. There are all sorts of places that says, I ain't going to cut it. Sometimes as Baptists, we're guilty of this. Some days we're very legalistic, right? You know, if you don't, if you do this, you can't be a Christian. You if you do this, you can't even come to our church. You ever been you ever been in a church where people weren't welcome? You ever been part of a Baptist church where sinners weren't welcome? I, I've seen that happen. Yeah, you know, we don't want those kind of people coming to our church. Well, you know, they're sinners. But on the other hand, I can't tell you the number of times I have heard people say, 
Well, Odani Ray gave his life to the Lord when he was seven. And he quit going to church when he was 13. He's 63 now. He hadn't stepped foot in the door in church except for a funeral. He has nothing to do with God. But he was safe when he was seven. So I'm comfortable God's going to forgive him for all of his lifestyle and rebellion against God. He's what they call a carnal Christian, which is completely misunderstood. And, and I'm like, are, 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 are you crazy? Because according to scripture, you live a life given over to sin. Not that you sin. We all sin. You give a life given over to sin. You're going to follow Christ. Read what Paul wrote. He says, if this describes you, you know, you, you can't do it. Remember all the fruits of the Spirit? Remember? Where's the fruit of the Spirit found? Where? Galatians. You ever read right before the fruit of the Spirit? What's in that? All the people who aren't inheriting the kingdom of God. It's not that you committed that sin. Because we've all committed. I, you know, listen. It's not that. It's that this describes you. What describes you in Galatians? This whole body of immorality? Or the fruit. One fruit. Peace, love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Which describes you? I'll tell you what describes me. The fruit of the Spirit describes me. Not perfectly. Especially the patience part. That does not come close. But the goodness, kindness, gentle, the gentleness describes me to a T. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care what you say right there. So here's the thing. It's not about whether we sin. It's about whether we're given over to sin. Listen, when I sin, it troubles my soul. I say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Working on my sermon for Sunday about faith, I had to take a few moments today to say, I have great faith. But sometimes, you know what I don't do, God? I don't ask you for more faith. And that bothered me. It bothered me that I don't spend enough time, not more in terms of quantity, because I got all the faith, but I don't ask for that faith to be demonstrated. You see, when you're a follower of Christ and you realize there's a deficiency, it troubles your soul. And if sin never bothers you, my friend, you are probably not with Christ on this one. So, we're going to continue with the whole thing about libertinism next week and continue on and on. But understand, there's two extremes, legalism and libertinism. And it's not about balance. I, I hate when people talk about in the Christian faith there's balance. It's not about balance. Balance is an Eastern mystical term. It's not necessarily a biblical term. Biblical term is relationship. There has to be the right relationship. And the right relationship excludes legalism and excludes libertinism. The right relationship only focuses on obedience to God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, we can have time to ask them now. Ah, there's one. John the Baptist had uh, the baptism of repentance before yes. Christ. Yes. And when Christ came, Christ wanted to be baptized. Yes. But Christ never had anything to repent for. Correct. But that was a baptism of repentance. I don't quite understand why Christ wanted to be baptized because he had nothing to repent. Why was Christ baptized John the Baptist? John the Baptist's baptism was one primarily repentance. Christ was baptized for two primarily reasons. One, to identify himself with his people. 
So it was an act of identification, which is what baptism is for us. Secondly, it was the beginning of his ministry, because in that moment at his baptism, the God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that is the beginning point of his official ministry. So the baptism of Jesus then identifies himself with his people, who he has come to save, which connects to us, and then it also begins the ministry as it moves forward. So is there another hand I thought I saw? Yes. We understand that the crucifixion is necessary for Christ to be ready to take upon our sins. Is the flogging, the mocking, the carrying of the cross to the hill, is that necessary? Or could, why did it happen that way as opposed to Christ just... So the crucifixion was necessary, the death of Jesus was necessary, but all the stuff that goes before it, that was just, it, that was not necessary in terms of our sin being accounted for. But the suffering, the beating, A, is predicted in the Old Testament. But B, that's what they did. That was all a part of the crucifixion scene. Everybody, to some degree, suffered like that. But remember the flogging of Jesus, the beating of Jesus, was Pilate's way of trying to get away with not having him crucified. We'll beat him, and that will be it. Uh, And that wasn't enough for the people. They wanted him crucified. So the suffering, the scripture talks about for his stri- by his stripes we are healed. That's all part of the process, predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm never comfortable saying when it comes to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, could God have done something different? There are a lot of things I can say God could have done something different. How Joseph ended up in Egypt, God could have done that some other way. I mean, it's just logistically. Uh, so when it comes to Jesus on the cross, everything that happened was necessary because it happened. The fact that it happened when it comes to Jesus, the virgin birth, the death, the resurrection, everything connected with Jesus was necessary because it happened that way. So other things I might say may or may not be necessary, or God could have done it some other way. With Jesus, I'm never comfortable saying what God could have done another way because of the uniqueness of Christ. So I would say it was necessary because that's what happened. Yes. We are on the receiving end of grace. We don't know what it looks like from God's perspective. Good point. Yes, sir. David had multiple sins. Yes. Apparently, a stereotype sin. He married uh, Bathsheba. Yes. Now, he basically, as I understand, he continuously lived in sin. Yeah, he was uh, after God's own heart. So, how do you address something like that? So, David, who was a man after God's own heart, who still committed sins, the sin of Bathsheba. Uh, well, the sin of Bathsheba was eventually repented from. Psalm 51 is his repentance of the sin with Bathsheba. And then God took that sin and blessed it by giving Solomon. So, obviously, God forgave David for the happened with Bathsheba. Uh, to say that David is a man after God's own heart, I mean... All of the three greatest men in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David, all had serious sins in their life. Serious. I mean, Moses was not allowed to go in the promised land because of one of his sins. And fundamentally, if God did not use sinful people to accomplish his will, then nothing would be done. I think fundamental to David was his sins were never sins about his relationship with God. The sins that you see of David all, all stem from his fundamental sense of Pride in a sense of, uh, I'm owed that, uh, uh, when you're owed something, his, his sense of uh, 
Huh? Entitlement. That's what I'm looking for. Exactly. His sense of entitlement as a king. As a king, he was entitled to whatever woman he wanted. As a king, he was entitled to know his countrymen. So his sins all extend, uh, uh, came from his sense of entitlement. Never because of a lack of faith or a lack of trust in God. Same thing with Moses, to some degree, and Abraham. All of their sins, their sins never dealt fundamentally with an abandonment of faith in God, which is what Saul's sin was, uh, King Saul. See you Sunday. Now that we're through, I can safely say, go Astros. <laughs> okay, sorry. I did this